Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, violence, and child mortality. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. South Africa in the late 1800s was a wild frontier, a time of discovery, risk, lawlessness, and cruelty. As families from Great Britain swarmed the area searching for gold and land, it seemed like anyone could get away with just about anything. They didn't care that they were stealing land and resources from the native population. After all, many of them believed they were intellectually superior to the locals of the region, and they felt they had a higher moral compass. But one white woman proved them wrong when she gave up a promising nursing career to become a housewife and a part-time killer. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to provide Alistair with some medical insight into our case of Daisy DeMelker. She was a South African nurse who specialized in wills and poisons. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our one-part episode on Daisy Demelka, South Africa's first female serial killer. Trained as a nurse, Daisy took nearly as many husbands as she did lives. By the time she was caught, she'd even killed the one person she loved most in the world. Today, we'll follow Daisy's origins as a first-generation South African colonist. We'll hear how she wrestled with twin impulses, being an independent, ambitious nurse and a loyal housewife. It was this internal conflict that wrecked the lives of every man she pulled into her clutches. But Daisy maintained her innocence until the bitter end. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Despite the many hazards it presented, colonial South Africa attracted thousands of English settlers during the 1800s. However, no town screamed the Great Frontier 
quite like seven fountains, which occupied an inhospitable landscape in today's Eastern Cape province. One of the families to arrive was the Hancorn Smiths, who had plans to start a dairy farm. Once they settled, they did what many families did at the time, produced as many offspring as possible. Among their 11 children was a girl named Daisy. Daisy Hancorn Smith was born on June 1, 1886. From an early age, her acute intelligence separated her from the pack. But in Seven Fountains, Daisy's smarts couldn't protect her from everything. Illnesses like malaria ran rampant in the South African frontier, where many settlements had no plumbing and sanitation conditions were poor. On top of that, quality medical care was hard to come by. As Daisy grew up, she likely saw family members and neighbors suffer from disease. A lack of sewage, sanitation, and disposal can be a big catalyst for illness as it creates a hotbed for bacteria, viruses, and harmful parasites. This would have been particularly dangerous at a time when things like cholera and typhoid were so devastating and often lethal. In conditions like this, it wasn't uncommon for seemingly healthy people to fall ill and pass away suddenly. Daisy's father didn't want his smartest child to suffer a similar fate. So when Daisy turned 13, he sent her to the Good Hope Seminary School in Cape Town. Here, the living conditions were a bit better and she could live out her true potential. The same year Daisy left, war broke out between the British and Dutch-speaking inhabitants of the Cape known as the Boers, leading to over 100,000 casualties. It's believed this event was what first piqued Daisy's interest in becoming a nurse. In 1903, at age 17, Daisy wrapped up her primary education and enrolled in nursing school. During a visit home, she crossed paths with a young British Army employee named Bert Fuller. It was essentially love at first sight. The two began a torrid romance as Daisy continued her schooling. Bert had a lot of potential as a long-term partner. He earned a decent income, and as a soldier, the government provided him housing equipped with a full staff. Suffice it to say, Daisy found Bert's livelihood appealing. But she was torn between two paths. She could either stay in school, or she could start a family. But doing both wasn't a considerable option for women of her time. Over the next few months, she struggled over which direction to take in her life. Daisy came to a decision in 1906. She put her education on hold and focused on Bert. She left school and moved to Rhodesia, where Bert had settled for work. Soon after, he proposed. The pair set a wedding date for March 2nd, 1907. But prior to their nuptials, Bert was reassigned to an extremely hot, remote area of modern-day Zimbabwe near Victoria Falls. To Daisy, it seemed even worse than her frontier childhood in Seven Fountains. She couldn't imagine living there for the foreseeable future. By the end of the year, she told Bert she changed her mind. She wasn't calling off their marriage yet, but she did delay their wedding from March to October. In the meantime, she was going back to school. Bert supported Daisy's ambitions. 
In early 1907, Daisy headed south to Johannesburg to get her nursing degree at a teaching hospital. She arrived after days of traveling, but before she could settle in, she received a troubling message. Bert had come down with a serious fever. Worried, Daisy boarded a train to Victoria Falls to see her ailing fiancé. When she arrived, Bert was in awful shape, and his condition was only getting worse. Doctors claimed he was dying from Blackwater fever. Blackwater fever is a set of symptoms rather than a disease in and of itself. It comes from a systemic interaction between the plasmodium falciparum parasite, which causes malaria, and quinine, which was once an anti-malaria treatment. Symptoms include fever, anemia, acute kidney failure, and dark-colored urine, hence the condition's name. Because this malarial parasite invades the red blood cells, quinine and its derivatives were meant to destroy it at the source. Unfortunately, this caused a lot of collateral cellular damage throughout the body, and the waste material from that got passed through the urine, giving it a dark red or even black color. Malaria-related deaths were likely something Daisy saw a lot of in her life, and seeing her fiancé suffer from it must have been especially heartbreaking. Daisy tried in vain to nurse Bert back to health, but before their wedding date arrived, Bert died. Daisy mourned him and the future they imagined together, but she knew she couldn't wallow in despair forever. The 21-year-old Daisy returned to school and earned her degree before the year was up. Right before she became a practicing nurse, Daisy received another telegram about Bert. This time, it was good news. While they'd never married, Bert still left her a generous sum of £95, about a half-year's salary. For the first time in her life, Daisy was financially independent. She took some time off, but knew the funds wouldn't last forever. Eventually, she got a nursing job in Johannesburg. Daisy arrived at her first shift feeling somewhat prepared. She'd already aided her dying fiancé on his deathbed. This also helped her to empathize with the grieving widows she encountered. She was always known to be smart, but now Daisy displayed an emotional intelligence that seemed unparalleled. For a few months, she poured herself into her work, but she still had a lingering desire to find love. And she found it in 1908 when she met 36-year-old William Alfred Cowell. Alfred was impressed with Daisy's independent nature, and Daisy was mostly taken with her new beau's income. According to the journalist Marilyn Z. Tomlins, Alfred was a municipal plumber for Johannesburg, a city no older than 22-year-old Daisy. So it was up to workers like him to maintain the city's sewage system. It was a major undertaking, but the paycheck more than made up for its hardships. Much like in her prior relationship, Alfred and Daisy got engaged quickly. On March 3, 1908, Daisy Hancorn Smith became Daisy Cowell. As hard as Daisy had worked to become a nurse, she again decided to put her career aside and start a family. The couple bought a house in an underdeveloped suburb of Johannesburg, but the living conditions weren't far off from the hometown Daisy spent her youth in. 
Due to sanitation problems, disease ran rampant, which may be why Daisy and Alfred faced so much heartbreak over their next seven years together. Tragically, all five of their children suffered from a range of illnesses. Some symptoms were clearly diagnosed as liver problems, but others were a mystery. Their son, Rhodes Cecil Cowell, was the only one of five children to survive. From the moment he was born in June 1911, he was the light of Daisy and Alfred's life. But around 1917, Alfred experienced his own bouts of sickness. He suffered from a weak stomach, fever, and muscle spasms. More often than not, Daisy's cooking didn't agree with him. To cope with his symptoms, Alfred turned to pharmacist-made syrups and other fad medications. Old wives' remedies were especially common in places where proper medical care was hard to access. In the absence of scientific understanding, people can unfortunately come to rely on anecdotal evidence for solutions to their ailments. Everyone wishes for some sort of miracle cure, and unfortunately, this is an irresistible avenue for quacks peddling nonsense. These commodities, like alleged magic elixirs, breakthrough supplements, and patented treatments, have been around forever and is still something doctors need to advise their patients about. Although some of these treatments can be beneficial in certain respects or have placebo effects, a great number can actually be very harmful to someone's health. Some historical examples were the use of arsenic for weight loss, radium ingestion, and colonics for those with bowel issues. I once had a patient who was convinced that putting a red potato up her rectum would cure her constipation. Unfortunately, all this red potato did was turn brown, and she needed to be admitted to the hospital for emergency rectal surgery. Although this particular woman was stubborn, it's always a good idea to talk to your doctor before changing or forming your own treatment plan. Except Alfred was hesitant to consult with a doctor. He claimed real men didn't seek the help of medical professionals for things like insomnia. Alfred was likely in denial. His condition expanded well beyond not being able to sleep. His stomach pains got so bad that Daisy begged him to schedule an appointment. He finally agreed and set one for a Friday in January 1923. But the day before meeting the doctor, Alfred took a turn for the worse. And Daisy seemed to be just as shocked as everyone else. Coming up, Daisy's descent into darkness. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream. Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Daisy Cowell was an ambitious nurse who put her career aside to start a family with her husband, Alfred Cowell. But by 1923, Alfred faced inexplicable health issues. And the quack medications Alfred used to treat his symptoms seemingly did more harm than good. While Daisy had helped administer many of those concoctions, she eventually convinced Alfred to make an appointment with a doctor. The day before, Alfred's stomach cramps became so severe he couldn't get out of bed. His symptoms snowballed into nausea, constipation, and confusion. Daisy watched as her husband screamed and convulsed. While anxiously awaiting the doctor, Daisy gave Alfred some Epsom salts mixed in water as a laxative, just in case something was upsetting his digestive tract. The physician told Alfred it probably wasn't serious and he just needed to sleep it off. He wrote a prescription for a sedative and left for the night. Hours later, Alfred was blue in the face and foaming at the mouth. By morning, he was dead. The doctor who'd been called in as Alfred died was astounded by how fast the patient had declined. So astonished, in fact, that his feelings mounted into pure suspicion. He called for an autopsy the very next day. There, the coroner found evidence of nephritis and cerebral hemorrhage, more commonly known as a stroke. He listed this as the cause of death and ruled out any chance of foul play. This could be a huge oversight, considering severe strychnine poisoning can also cause severe damage to the kidneys and cerebral hemorrhaging. Nephritis is a condition normally caused by infection, disease, or genetic issues in which the kidneys tissues become inflamed and unable to properly filter waste from the blood. Just like acute strychnine toxicity, without treatment, nephritis can result in kidney failure and death. Aside from the apparent renal failure, though, Alfred's blue face leading up to his death might have indicated strychnine cyanotic effect, and his foaming mouth could have been a further marker of the poison. It would have also been important to note the rigidity and position of Alfred's body. Because strychnine interferes with nerve signals in the brain that regulate muscle contraction, it can actually leave people in locked or contorted positions past the point of death and pretty long afterward. It's odd that an already suspicious doctor wouldn't pursue their gut feeling and request a toxicology test just to be sure. But as far as the police were concerned, the case was closed. Alfred was laid to rest the following day. Once again, history repeated itself for Daisy. She grieved her loss while learning her husband had left her nearly 1,800 pounds, about 19 times what she'd inherited from Bert. Again, knowing she couldn't live off the inheritance forever, Daisy started to look for work in 1923. After all, she now had a 12-year-old son to care for on her own. But by this point, her education was outdated. The only job she could land was a low-paying position as a porter in the nearby Children's Memorial Hospital. Still, she enjoyed the work and felt she was doing something good with her time. 
but she may have had guilt about leaving her son at home by himself because she spoiled Rhodes to a fault. Even when Rhodes failed out of school as a teenager, Daisy felt he was nothing short of perfect. She believed he was still smart enough to go to Hilton College, one of the most prestigious private schools in South Africa. Apparently, she used their inheritance to try and buy his acceptance. And it worked. For a little while. After just one year, Rhodes flunked out and was back to square one. But Daisy didn't give up on him. Instead, she paid for her 16-year-old son to attend trade school. She thought he might make a decent plumber like his father. And for a while, this path stuck with Rhodes. But by 1926, Daisy had wasted a good portion of her life savings on his education. Now her meager salary could barely keep them afloat. Plus, with her son in school, she was even lonelier than before. She felt there was only one thing left to do. Find another husband. She wasn't on the market for long before finding the roughly 50-year-old Robert Sprout. To say Bob felt familiar to Daisy would be an understatement. He was almost a carbon copy of her late husband. They were both municipal plumbers for Johannesburg, and it's even possible they had known each other. Like Alfred, Bob was wealthy. He'd made smart financial decisions and never had a family to provide for. While he enjoyed frequent trips to England, expensive clothes, and his own car, he still earned more money than he could spend. Which was exactly what Daisy liked in a man. It's impossible to say why Bob hadn't settled down before, or why Daisy was the one to change his mind. But the two got engaged after just a few months of dating. During the course of 1926, Daisy Cowell became Daisy Sprout. Bob moved out of his bachelor pad and into Daisy's house. However, their marital bliss was disturbed whenever Rhodes was home. He resented sharing his mother with another man. Likewise, Bob thought Rhodes was spoiled. The tension was palpable whenever the two were together. It turned out Bob's similarities to Alfred didn't end with his career. In 1926, Bob also developed a weak stomach, suffering from cramps and indigestion. And Daisy, ever the dutiful wife, played nurse. Then, on one spring day in 1927, Bob collapsed, claiming he was suffering excruciating pain in his side. He pulled through, but during that summer, the pain flared up repeatedly. In October, Bob had his most serious attack to date. As he screamed in pain, Daisy feared the end was near. Again, she found herself by a dying husband's bedside. She sent for her brother-in-law, William Sprout, so he could say his goodbyes. But by the time William arrived, it looked like Bob was improving. Then, one morning, as William sat by his brother's bedside, Daisy casually brought up the subject of Bob's will. She'd just remembered. He hadn't updated it since their marriage. William was speechless. Bob's will certainly hadn't been at the forefront of his mind, but 
he did recall his brother saying he wanted Daisy to be taken care of after his death. So William went along with it. Daisy retrieved the necessary document and handed it to an ailing Bob who used his weak grip to sign off on the new draft. Now it was official. Daisy would get everything. Any uneasy feelings William had likely dissipated as Bob recovered. Eventually, he seemed to be doing so well that William packed his things and returned home. For about a month, things in the Sprout household went back to normal. Bob appeared healthy, although he was still dealing with his standard stomach issues. Then, November rolled around. On a hot, lazy Sunday, Bob was relaxing in the living room when he asked Daisy to fetch him a beer. She brought it to him, then returned to the kitchen to fix lunch for him and Rhodes. When Rhodes came in to eat, he found Bob passed out on the sofa. His stepfather was pale and covered in sweat. Daisy emerged from the kitchen with a look of shock on her face. She immediately called a doctor who, after assessing the patient, determined he'd had a stroke. A few minutes later, Bob was dead. The doctor believed Bob had also died of cerebral hemorrhage as well as arteriosclerosis. He signed a death certificate without a second thought. It's unfortunate that Bob wasn't given an autopsy, especially since, again, stroke can be a symptom of strychnine exposure. Arterial sclerosis is a disease involving the narrowing and hardening of the heart's blood vessels over time due to a buildup of cholesterol-based plaque. This condition would have made any poisoning scenario worse, but wouldn't result from it. Still, it's a wonder that no one saw a pattern forming. Perhaps the only person who did see the pattern was Daisy herself. Others only saw a 41-year-old widow grieving the loss of her second husband. On November 8th, Bob was buried in a grave right next to Alfred. William, who attended his brother's funeral, was more suspicious of Daisy than ever. He planned to confront her, but after watching her sob, he felt it wasn't the time nor the place. And for reasons unknown, William kept his suspicions to himself even after Bob's affairs were settled. In the end, Daisy made out with over £4,500, more than double what she'd inherited from her first husband. Now, with only one man in her life, Daisy went back to spoiling roads. In the summer of 1928, she took him on a three-month trip to England. While abroad, she bought him an expensive motorcycle and arranged for it to be shipped all the way back to Johannesburg. Rhodes loved the bike and even learned to maintain it on his own, finally finding something he was passionate about. But it came at a huge cost. Within a year, Daisy spent a huge chunk of the inheritance on Rhodes and his new hobby. To make matters worse, he flunked out of his trade school. Daisy lost all hope he'd ever be able to support himself or her. Daisy grew bitterly disappointed in Rhodes. He'd done nothing but squander every opportunity she provided. Over time, that disappointment festered into resentment. 
their once close relationship fell apart. And over the next couple of years, their money slowly ran out. Finally, in 1930, Rhodes lucked into a job as a government-employed mechanic. The new position required him to move, so Daisy once again had the house to herself. Rhodes held on to this job longer than Daisy expected, but he spent much more than his salary allowed, which was less than four pounds per week. He constantly asked Daisy for more money, which led to arguments. Still, Daisy missed her son. She visited him whenever she got the chance. And every time she went, she made sure to bring him a fresh batch of her delicious signature homemade cookies. Coming up, Rhodes pushes his limits and Daisy strikes back. Now, back to the story. By the summer of 1930, 44-year-old Daisy Sprote had lost three romantic partners to sudden, mysterious illnesses. The only man left in her life was her 19-year-old son Rhodes, whose apparent laziness and rage issues made it difficult for him to hold down a job. But even as their inheritance dwindled, Daisy made sure to visit her son as often as she could. And as the journalist Marilyn Z. Tomlins explains, she always came with a fresh batch of cookies. During one of these visits, she brought Rhodes another surprise, a will. She reminded the young man that it was never too early to start thinking about the future. Rhodes filled out the will without a second thought. He knew more than anyone that a man's luck could change in an instant. Daisy filed the paperwork as soon as she got home. Now, should the worst happen to her beloved son, she'd get what little he had to his name. Meanwhile, Bob's money had finally run out. Daisy needed another husband to take care of her, and it wasn't long before she met 46-year-old Sidney Clarence DeMelka, or Sid. Earlier in his life, Sid had been a famous rugby player, but now, like Alfred and Bob before him, he was a plumber. After his first wife passed away, he noticed Daisy in town once or twice. When they met again by chance, they had an instant connection. Sid was enchanted by Daisy, and just like all of her past relationships, they were engaged quickly. On January 21st, 1931, Daisy Sprout became Daisy DeMelka. She sold the house where she'd lost her two previous husbands and moved in with Sid. Around the same time, Rhodes was struggling at work. He frequently got into fights with co-workers that sometimes ended in violence. On one occasion, it got so bad, Daisy had to visit him in person to calm him down. As always, she arrived with a batch of cookies. After about three months, Rhodes' issues with authority came to a head. The 20-year-old showed up on Sid and Daisy's doorstep, claiming he'd finally quit. Despite their past tensions, Daisy took him in without hesitation. But the Demelka household soon became a toxic one. Sometime in early 1932, an argument between Daisy and Rhodes went south as usual. This time, Rhodes struck his own mother. Publicly, 
Daisy forgave him, making excuses for his behavior as she always had. But privately, Daisy must have been furious. She contemplated ways to deal with her out-of-control son and came to one forlorn conclusion. The boy needed to be taught a permanent lesson. In late February 1932, Daisy strolled into the same pharmacy where she used to pick up her first husband's medicine. She noticed it was the usual pharmacist, a man named Abraham Spilkin, but he didn't seem to recognize her. She casually walked up to the counter and told Abraham she had an old sickly cat that needed to be put down. She said there was only one thing that could do the job, arsenic. In many parts of the world, pharmacies are still called chemist shops, in part because a druggist who used to work the counter would personally mix and dispense all sorts of chemicals, including ones we know to be very dangerous today. At this point in history, arsenic was recognized as a harmful substance, but it was still being medically prescribed to treat conditions like asthma, syphilis, and fever. These were predominantly sold over the counter in liquid or solid form, like a powder, for instance. Thankfully, the medical community today has more evolved and safer methods of treatment. Considering the times, though, what Daisy did wasn't that out of the ordinary. The transaction went off without a hitch, and Abraham handed her a receipt to sign. After Daisy left, Abraham noticed the signature, D.L. Sprout. She'd used her previous last name and had given her old address. But Abraham had no reason to think anything of it. Later that month, Daisy woke up early to prepare breakfast for Rhodes. She also made him a thermos of coffee, this time using that vial of arsenic. Rhodes had no clue the tasteless substance was mixed in with his morning caffeine. At work, he even shared some with a co-worker named James. Shortly after, both men fell ill. James felt better the next day, but Rhodes was a different story. On March 2nd, 1932, he complained of a headache and loss of appetite. The next day, he came home early from work and crawled into bed. By the following afternoon, Rhodes had a debilitating stomach pain that got increasingly worse into the night. The next day, a doctor came by the Demelka household and diagnosed Rhodes with intestinal influenza. Daisy didn't leave Rhodes' bedside. On the outside, she appeared to be worried sick about him, especially as he slipped into a coma on March 5th. In a matter of hours, Daisy watched her only son take his final breath. Daisy buried Rhodes in the local cemetery, a few feet away from his father. At the ceremony, one well-wisher offered condolences to Daisy. She only replied, it was nice to have the will made out. Except she didn't receive as much from Rhodes' estate as she had from her deceased husband's. It totaled about £100, plus his last few wages. There was one small consolation for the grieving mother. The Demelka house was quieter than it had been in months. But it was just the calm before the storm. 
Over the course of a few weeks, news of Rhodes' death travelled through the grapevine. By April, it had reached Bob's brother, William Sprout. William had been harbouring suspicion against Daisy ever since his brother's death, but he couldn't prove it. Nor did he think anyone would believe him. But in light of recent events, he was certain Daisy had killed her past husbands as well as her own son. Which meant surely her current husband, Sid, was in danger. William contacted the police and shared his story. The police agreed to pursue the lead and got a warrant to exhume the bodies. From there, it was all downhill for Daisy. On the night of April 15th, Alfred, Bob and Rhodes were pulled from the earth. Rhodes was the first to be examined because his corpse was in a shocking state. Even though he'd been dead for over a month, his body was still in exceptional condition. It appeared as if he was merely sleeping. While arsenic can kill a person, it's also known to slow decomposition after death. Arsenic solutions were actually the first forms of embalming fluids. This is because the poison kills bacteria involved in the decay or breakdown of a body. Rhodes' state should have been a telltale sign to detectives that arsenic was present in his system. Just to be sure, government analysts also tested Rhodes' hair and vertebrae for the toxin. Sure enough, they came back positive for arsenic. But Alfred and Bob's bodies told a different tale. Since they seem to have decomposed naturally, analysts look for evidence of other poisons, which didn't take long to find. Their bones had a pinkish hue, a known side effect of strychnine poisoning. Strychnine is naturally clear or crystal white, but it's so dangerous that some chemists dye it pink, so it's not confused for anything else. This is for everyone's safety, and it also throws a hitch in someone's potential evil plans. The fact that strychnine leaves a visible trace in the body can make the cause of death easier to identify. Daisy didn't know it yet, but she was living on borrowed time. About a week after the autopsies, she had a neighbour over for tea while Sid began his day at work. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. A detective stood on her stoop. He calmly asked Daisy if she would come with him to the station for a few questions. Daisy's blood ran cold. She knew her time was up, but there was nowhere for her to run. She followed the officer downtown. There... Daisy was charged with the murders of Alfred, Bob, and Rhodes. The first headlines appeared the day after Daisy's arrest. Those who knew Daisy were shocked. Many had viewed her as a widow with a tragic bout of bad luck, but now it was clear she was the cause of her misfortunes. Rhodes' co-worker James came forward and offered himself for testing. Authorities found both James's hair and Rhodes' thermos had traces of arsenic. After seeing Daisy's photo in the paper, Abraham Spilkin, the chemist who'd sold Daisy the arsenic, also came forward. He even supplied the police with Daisy's fraudulent receipt, which proved she'd been trying to cover her tracks. Daisy's trial began that October. Locals lined up outside the courtroom, hoping to sit in on the proceedings. 60 witnesses, including toxicology experts, spoke out against Daisy. However, 
she remained calm and poised throughout. Both she and Sid believed she was not guilty of the crimes. Despite the autopsies, the judge ruled there wasn't sufficient evidence to prove Daisy had poisoned her first two husbands with strychnine. But he did find her guilty of killing her own son. Daisy was sentenced to die by hanging. On December 30th, 1932, 46-year-old Daisy Demelka was executed before a small crowd of prison guards. She maintained her innocence until the bitter end. Because Daisy was never psychologically analyzed, her true motivations have been lost to history. It's possible she felt trapped in her relationships, and while it's unclear if she also had a hand in her first fiancé, Bert's death, she did gain an inheritance from him, Alfred, and Bob. However, she didn't have as much to gain from the death of her beloved son, Rhodes, yet she still sent him to an early grave. Maybe the most baffling thing about Daisy is how long it took to commit her crimes. From their symptoms, it seems Daisy supplied Alfred, Bob, and Rhodes for years with toxic medicine, food, drinks, even freshly baked cookies. It's possible Daisy thought by keeping her loved ones sick, she was also keeping them close and under her control. If this was the case, then maybe their fatal overdoses were accidental, a botched attempt at bringing them to death's door just so she could nurse them back to health again. While we may never know what exactly went on in Daisy's mind, one thing for sure, Johannesburg was lucky she never made nursing a full-fledged career. On the other hand, to play devil's advocate, maybe this would have spared lives by keeping her out of so many people's wills. But then again, it's more likely her apparent evil would have slipped through in other forms or schemes. She seemed to be consumed by greed, and that's a recipe for disaster when someone's career involves taking care of others. Who knows how many lives such a twisted caretaker might have destroyed had things gone differently. Daisy's case caused a huge stir in the city of Johannesburg. She rattled the ideals set forth by British colonials in South African society in no small part because of her own race, gender, and class. Many believed wealthy white women were the most harmless of them all, conformists with an unwavering moral compass. Daisy Demelka clearly proved that age-old stereotype wrong. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Daisy Demelka, among the many sources we used, we found the Crime Magazine article, Daisy Demelka, South Africa's First Serial Killer, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. 
Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Eric Stankey, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Laurie Gottlieb, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.